Hey, how's it going? Welcome to Hawaii. My source sheet. Here. You guys probably know each other. We've met once. We're back there, are you? A couple <laughs> times. Couple times. Alayfim. Alayfim. Here's the source sheet. Just one today. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sharing with you a piece from Rav Cook. And um, Rav Cook is very difficult in Hebrew. And if you get a good translation of Rav Cook, it's, it's, it's really a tremendous gift. This is, this is quite a good translation. And so uh, rather than spending the time to read the Hebrew and translate the Hebrew, which would really I don't think right now is worth the time. I'd rather spend the time focusing on the concept of what Rav Kook is sharing here. Um, I came to the teachings of Rav Kook because my Rebbe, Rav Shlomo Fisher, who I had the schuss to learn with, or he learned with me privately every day for about three, four hours a day in his room. We would learn sod. And at the end of every session, I would ask him all kinds of different questions. Um, and I asked him, um, where can I find a Torah that will set my soul on fire? And to my surprise, he said, Rav Kook and Rav Tzadok, which he had never mentioned Rav Kook or Rav Tzadok. Not that he had to, but it just never came up in any conversation until then. I was very surprised at that, especially with Rav Kook, uh, because... Um, the constant critique you probably hear against Rav Cook is he doesn't quote his sources. Where are his sources? And um, so I said that to Rav Shlomo Fisher, and he says, the sources of Rav Cook is Kol HaTorah Kulo. And if he were to put a source in this Midrash or in this Gemara, you, you wouldn't see it. Because it's not in this Gemara or this Midrash or this Pasuk. When you know Kol HaTorah Kulo, this is the obvious conclusion of that. That's what Rav Shlomo Fisher said to me. Now, I trust Rav Shlomo Fisher because he knows Kola Torah Kulo. Because when I would ask him a question, where does it say X? He would literally scan in his head the entire Torah. He'd go, it's not in the Tanakh. It's not in the Midrash. It's not, it's not, in, the, it's not in the Yushalmi. It's not in the Bavli. It's not in the Zohar. Oh, it is in the Midrash. He passed that uh, many volumes ago. It was just really super natural what, what, what volumes he knew in himself. So I trusted what he said and I began to really immerse myself in the research of the teachings of Rav Kook. And it really was life-changing. And I've also done a lot of research in the writings of Rav Tzadok. And a lot of my sources, my source sheets are built on those two sources, but I, I will draw from anywhere Rabbi Nachman, Zohar, Midrash, Gemara, my research is just to try and present an understanding of Torah that is source-based that can give you a comprehensive understanding of Torah. Rav Kook had a four-part plan 
and what he believed needed to happen for this generation to bring us back. The first thing he said is we have to restore respect for Torah. People think it's backwards, not sophisticated, not moral. They don't respect Torah. But I can maybe get a person to respect Torah, put a rabbi up there that's a brilliant, and they say, okay, these are heavyweights. Okay, I respect there must be wisdom there. But they might not love it. So the second step is I respect it and I love it. I'm drawn to it. I'm attracted to these ideas. The third step, Rav Cook says, is to offer a real education of these ideas, a comprehensive understanding of these ideas. And then the third is that they take a first step. The, the, I'm sorry, the fourth step is that they take a first step. But they're not going to take a first step if they don't respect it, love it, and understand it. And that is really the formula that I have based my career as an educator on to try and help people respect, love, and really understand in a more comprehensive, systematic way what is this about? What is the point of all this? So this is one of those really key pieces and we'll do the best we can with the amount of time that we have. So we're going to do it in English. It's called <coughs> Avodat Hashem. The concept of serving Hashem when it is defined in lowly terms corresponding to a person's limited understanding of what he means by Hashem, it is the service of a slave. If a person has a lowly understanding, a very immature, unsophisticated, primitive understanding of Hashem, then everything will correspond to that kind of God that they think Hashem is, and they will end up perceiving Avodah Hashem as slavery. And there's a lot of Jews today that are not interested in Torah because nobody's interested in being a slave. But Eved Hashem sounds the same thing as Eved Faro, you know? And so I used to be an Eved to Faro and now I'm Eved to Hashem. Ah, with Faro I had hope. He might die someday. But to be an Eved Hashem, <laughs> he's here forever. And not like that, I can't even hide and run from him because he's wherever so that's really not a particularly attractive, inspiring, empowering idea. Who wants to be an Eved Hashem? Already we're stuck. We're already stuck. So, so go back. The concept of serving Hashem when it's defined in lowly terms, corresponding to a person's limited understanding of what he means by Hashem, it is a service of a slave. It rises in stature. Avodah Hashem is going to you know, be upgraded to the same extent as his understanding of Hashem will rise. If you have a more sophisticated understanding of Hashem, then everything related to Hashem will become more refined and more sophisticated. And so he says, if a person should reach a state where his moral intellectual powers have been duly developed in accordance with his potentialities in the cultural <coughs> climate of his time, yet his understanding of Hashem remains on a low plane, then there will necessarily emerge into him a fierce opposition to the whole idea of serving Hashem. In other words, as society becomes more developed and more sophisticated, more philosophically inclined, more capable of abstract thinking, but God continues to be the God of their childhood, 
then they will rebel against such a God. It's like, my son, when he was like six or seven years old, he asked me, Abba, what are you teaching your Talmidim? Now my Talmidim, at the time, were adults, and they were between 23, 60, 70 years old. And for my son, you know, when you're seven years old, 18-year-olds are the elderly, okay? So for him, they were like old people, 23, you know, 30, whatever. So he said, Abba, what are you teaching your students? So I said, well, actually, right now we're learning Parshas Lech Lecha. And he started to laugh. And I said, what's so funny? He said, I'm studying Lech Lecha. You know, and so that's really funny that I'm seven years old and I'm studying the same Parsha as these old people that are in their 20s and 30s and 40s. <laughs> are we studying the same Lech Lecha? If the Lech Lecha and the Vieira and the Chayasar that you're studying now is the same Parsha that you studied when you were a little boy, something's not going to work. some point you're going to say, come on, Give me better Torah. Give me something. I mean, it's like you 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 register to a PhD program in mathematics, and they teach you. The professor gets up and says, two plus two equals four. I mean, how long could you stand being in a PhD program? Come on, I'm ready for a PhD. You're teaching me grade two math, and this is the problem. The problem is that the word Hashem has not changed for people since they're little children. That's as crazy as the word love has the same meaning for you today as it had for you when you're five years old. It's the same word. The word doesn't have to change. The meaning evolves. So I had this experience with this actor named Kirk Douglas, which you probably never heard of. But he was a very famous actor in his time. He gave birth to another actor that you might have heard of, which is Michael Douglas. So Kirk Douglas was in Jerusalem. It's a long story. And he's coming to my house for Friday night dinner. He's Jewish. And this mega Hollywood star is coming to my home for Friday night dinner. First, I pick him up at the, uh, the King David Hotel. We go over to the old city. We go to the rooftop of our yeshiva Raita. The rooftop is overlooking the Kotel, beautiful view of Har uh, Zetim and Ir David, this magnificent view. And uh, we're standing there. We haven't actually talked much at all since I picked them up. And uh, we really haven't said anything to each other, but now we're going to kind of sit and schmooze before we go down to the Kotel for Friday night. He turns to me and he starts to sing. That's what he did. I couldn't believe it. He was in his 70s. He was like 77 years old. And I, I was shocked. I said, uh, how do you know that? He said, I'm an actor. I know my lines. <laughs> he said, Rabbi, I grew up in an Orthodox home. My, my mother would bake challahs for Shabbos. She would light Shabbos candles. My mother would sit Friday night holding a chumash. She wasn't able to read Hebrew. She was an illiterate Russian woman. But she had a feeling of the holiness of the book. She would just hold it. I see my mother holding the chumash. But honestly, Rabbi, Judaism, 
is all form, no content. You know. <laughs> you know? So I said, oh, okay. Okay. I said, let me ask you something, Kirk. Imagine you, un- you, your understanding of money today would be the same understanding that you had of money when you were a child. How would you be spending your money? He said, I would be squandering it on junk. I said, okay. Imagine if your understanding of food, diet, today, is the same as your understanding of diet as you had as a child. What would you be eating? I said, I'd be eating junk. I said, okay. So, so I said, imagine, Kirk, if your understanding of Judaism today and your understanding of God today is the same as your understanding of Judaism and God you had when you were a child. What would your Judaism in relation to God be today? He said, okay, checkmate, Rabbi. You got me, Rabbi. Are you telling me to grow up? So I said, no, I'm not saying you should grow up. I'm just saying that as we grow up, concepts, words, and the meaning behind those words have to grow up with us. And so, too, I meet so many people that haven't really explored since they're children. What does the word Hashem mean? What does that word mean? Imagine a Martian lands on this planet and hears us talking about water. How refreshing it is. How essential it is. How fun it can be. This Martian says, what is this? What is this? So... He looks in the dictionary. A liquid that flows from faucets that's found in body. Does he know what water is? It's just noise. Water is just noise. What gives the noise water meaning is when you drink some water. And if you've never drank water and directly experienced it, it would just be noise. And even if you look it up in a dictionary, it's still maybe better noise, but it's still noise. What gives it meaning is an experience. Love is noise. And it only has meaning if somebody comes into your life and you engage in a genuine relationship with this person. Other than that, love is just noise. So this Martian, I give him a glass of water and I said, try this. And he goes, ah, I get it. Water. I say, well, actually, you don't get it. Because uh, the truth is that you have to try this stuff on a hot day. Ah. So we put him in a sauna. We turn up the water. uh, we We turn up the heat. And we give him a glass of water. He drinks that water. Whoa! Water! Whole different level, right? You know, you didn't get it yet. I didn't? No. You have to jump into it. How? No, no. Not into the glass. (laughs) It comes in big bodies of water. On a hot, hot day, when you're drinking this, you jump into it. And we throw them into a lake. And... He's drowning, but he's very excited because he's saying, because Martian's going how to swim. And he says, water, I get it, water. I said, good, all the best. Um, 
Until you meet Hashem, the word's just word. And you have to develop that experiential meaning of Hashem. What does that mean? And if a person is thirsty and you give them a piece of paper with the word water on it, well, I'm afraid that, sadly, this is, I've seen it happen in educational environments where people are thirsting Hashem and people are giving them a piece of paper with the word Hashem on it. I, I, I want to meet Hashem. How do I feel Hashem in my life? Directly, experientially. So, by the way, I wrote a book about that called Seeing God. So, a kind of experiential guide how to how to feel and, so to speak, meet Hashem in your life. Yes, what's your name? Uh, Joey. Yeah, Joey. What, what Again, that's just noise. But now, <laughs> we're directly connecting. Yes, Joey. So what if someone's apathetic to what you're saying? Like they agree to your logic, but they just don't want to accept that. Like how do you, what, what because they think this is logic. And there's, you know what? I can talk about chocolate cake until I'm blue. Until you taste it. Ta'amu re'u kitov Hashem. Taste and see that Hashem is good. And until you're ready to experientially know Hashem, all the talk is like talking about love, talking about love. I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm talking. We have to stop talking. Because it says, late machshava trisabe. The mind cannot grasp Bakadosh Baku. But the Zohar says, Ruta de Liva but the yearning of the heart can grasp him. But I won't be able to explain it. I won't be able to explain it. But I don't need to explain chocolate ice cream. If I'm blindfolded and somebody puts in front of me chocolate ice cream, I can say, This is chocolate ice cream. Someone will say, How do you know? I say, I peeked underneath. No, I know. Because I know the taste of chocolate ice cream. Okay. okay. What's the difference between the taste of chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream? I don't know. I say, you see, you don't know. But I can tell you the difference if I taste it. Okay, so tell me the difference. Well, I can't tell you. I can't tell you, but I know. Somehow, we've been convinced that if it can't be explained, it can't be real. The most real things in my life I can't explain. I cannot explain love. I cannot explain love. But I have no doubt. I have no suffix that I have experienced love and that it's real. So, so, so Rav Cook is saying that if a person doesn't have a mature understanding of Hashem, and he's not necessarily saying that it's a philosophical understanding, it's also an experiential knowing, then that is going to color and that is going to influence everything else about their Yiddishkeit. And they're going to think that Hashem is looking for slaves. Who wants to be a slave? Because, let's face it, what is everybody looking for? And I learned this from a very successful businessman. I went into his office and I was trying to solicit him for some support for our yeshiva. And he said to me, this is the best line, Rabbi, nobody wants money. Nobody wants money. <laughs> Good. I said, no, nobody wants money. Nobody wants money. Uh, I said, good, could you introduce me to them so that they can give it to us? <laughs> so he says, nobody wants money. I said, no. He says, no, you know what people want? They want freedom. Everybody wants freedom. And they've mistaken the money with freedom. Because they think that money is the ticket to freedom. Because with money, I can do what I want. 
where I want, with who I want. Money buys me freedom. But it doesn't. Because how many people end up becoming slaves to their money, to their jobs? So he said, so Rabbi, nobody wants money. I said, great. So I'll be happy to take yours off your hands and give you the freedom. Um, So how do I teach people a Yiddishkeit when in their minds you're telling them to be slaves? But we are taught that a Ben Chorin is only a person that learns Torah. And a Kodesh Baruch who gave you Torah to set you free. <coughs> Not to make you a slave. But a lot of people, because this hasn't been discussed, this hasn't been pointed out, this hasn't been fleshed out. So they think, I don't want God. I don't want God in my life. I remember one of my seminars, a guy came into my seminar, he was wearing a t-shirt of Calvin and Hobbes. Hobbes, the toy tiger, turns to Calvin says, Calvin, do you believe in God? Calvin's got this philosophical look on his face. He says, well, somebody's out to get me. That's God. Somebody's out to get me. And a lot of people, I meet a lot of people, a lot of from people. They have a God that's out to get them. Hashem is not out to get you. Hashem is out to give you. But, but if we don't discuss this, and more important, do a little singing at a kumzitz, Rabbi Nachman of Bretzlov says that the secret to Amuna are the certain nigunim. It might not be an article that will get you to Amuna. It might be a nigun that gets you to Amuna. Rav Kook says that Amuna is the self-revealing of the soul. It's not intellectual. It's not emotional. It's a deep sense of self-evident truth. That just as I know I exist, one can get to, through themselves, an awareness of Shem exists. Now, that's not what we're talking about right now. But what I just want you to share and share with what Ruth Cook is saying is that as long as people think that Yiddishkeit is about restricting me, then I'm out of here. Nobody wants restrictions. Now tell me, when you turn on ways, and Waze tells you where to go. Do you feel Waze is controlling you? Do you feel Waze is restricting you? Yes. yes. I don't like that woman. <laughs> so I put Elvis Presley in mind. You know, whatever. You know, is that, hey buddy, you're really off, man. So the, the whole idea here is, is Waze is guiding me. I'm not restricted by being guided. But, but I meet so many Yidden that feel that Yiddishkeit is just choking them. And that they would find greater fulfillment because they want freedom. And Yiddishkeit seems to be the antithesis of freedom. Can't do this, can't do that, can't do this, can't do that. So how is it possible that Yiddishkeit is freedom? So imagine you go to a concert and you see this guy playing jazz guitar. And he's just amazing. He is so spontaneous, so creative, so free, so flowing. You say, I want to learn how to do that. He said, well, you got to go to the best school in jazz that I came from in Kentucky. Okay, you sign up. Okay, you're ready. First three months, the history of the guitar. The history of guitar. I don't want to know the history of the guitar. 
Okay, now, the next seven months is all these painful exercises, finger exercises. You've got blisters all over your fingers. At the end of the year, you played no guitar. You run back to this guy and say, you ripped me off. I've been there and, and there's no music there. It's all restrictive. It's all painful. There's all these rules and regulations. What does the guy say to you? He says, buddy, that's how you become a master like me. All those rules and restrictions enable you to tap into a deeper place in yourself. Without the discipline, you're not free. People don't understand that. So... So, so Rav Cook is saying that as long as you think that Hashem is some tyrant, He wants you to be a slave, Yonashama knows that that can't be. Yonashama wants freedom. A Kodesh Baruch who created you in the image of a Kodesh Baruch Hu, in the B'Telem Elokim. So the next piece, number two. <coughs> the only remedy to overcome this is to elevate his concept of Hashem through deep feeling. Deep feeling. Elevate the concept of Hashem through deep feeling. We need some more experiential education. And comprehensive understanding. And of course, we want to support that with discussion. Machshava, sure. But there has to be a meeting of heart and mind. Understanding of ever-increasing scope. At least paralleling his other perceptions of the great and the sublime. You know, one of my teachers said that you can't have a person that meets Immanuel Kant in college, but he meets Rebbe Akiva when he was five years old. So he starts comparing Rebbe Akiva to Immanuel Kant. And who's the Rebbe Akiva of this boy at five years old and Immanuel Kant when this, this boy is not an adult, he's 20 years old. He needs to meet Rebbe Akiva again when he's 20 years old. And so Rav Cook is saying that people are sophisticated. Rav Cook said in the early 1900s, he said, we are going to witness a fall away from Yiddishkeit that has never happened in the history of Yiddishkeit. It'll be extraordinary in the masses leaving our tradition, but it will be extraordinary in the motivation of why they're leaving. And it never happened in our history. He said, if a Yid were to leave Yiddishkeit, it would be because it was too high a standard to live up to. They needed to get a job. They could only find a job on Shabbos. It was too hard for them. He said, but we're going to witness Yidin leaving Yiddishkeit not because Yiddishkeit is too high a standard to live up to, but because Yiddishkeit is too high a standard to stoop down to. Because they will believe and this is extraordinary in this generation that we are more moral than Torah. That's what's going on. We're moral. That Torah is not moral. Right? And we're not going to get into those topics right now because it will take us a long time. But we are more spiritually sophisticated. We're more intellectually advanced. This Judaism I heard in the name of, of Sam Harris. Uh, Sam Harris, he said, um, God couldn't have written the Bible because he could have written a much better book than that. 
If God wrote the Bible, he would have written a better book. How much learning have you done? How much learning have you done? There's a fellow that wrote a book called God, a Biography. He, I don't know if he's Jewish, I don't think he was Jewish, he won a prize for this book. And what does he do? He just reads Tanakh in English and he describes the story of God. And God just can't get his handle on this world. He's trying all kinds of strategic moves, changing his public relations, trying to build his different images, and it's just having. And 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 you read this book, I, I you know, and it's a thick book. I, I couldn't get through much of it at all. It was just like Hashem really has a problem. He really has a problem. So when people don't have, they 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 think that Torah is an unsophisticated backwards, primitive, immoral text. And and so Rav Cook says, we're going to lose Yidin. So you know what Rav Cook says? There's only going to be one remedy to bring our people back. We're going to have to open up the brightest lights. We're going to have to share the secrets. And he said, and this response, this essential response to reclaim our people was not the fall of our people. It was the climb of our people. Our people were advancing <coughs> and were ready for deeper Torah, for a more engaging, sophisticated relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And therefore, they weren't falling away from Yiddishkeit. They were asking for more. They were ready for more. And this is the same line of thinking that Rav Cook is bringing here. Um, so let's do some questions before I go on. Any questions? Is it revolutionary? Is it like Sounds like crazy. Not crazy. Uh, well, the Hasidic world, in the Hasidic world, it's not a Hasidish. You know, the idea that that the, the, the secrets of Torah, the panemius of Torah is going to be a necessary remedy for much of what's happening in this generation. That's what I'm seeing. That's what I'm seeing. Let's do a little bit more. Has progression? Yes. Um, is he saying like sort of twofold? That on the one hand, um, even if as a society we weren't, you know, becoming more intellectual, etc., that it would just, in general, it's just important to keep upgrading our definitions of Hashem. Just because we had it when we were little doesn't mean like we shouldn't. And on the second, the second thing is that, and like sort of like, and Dafka because everything else is becoming greater, that's even more of a reason. Yes, because people are more mature and therefore you have to talk to them in a more mature manner. What I teach a child is not the same thing as I'm going to teach you. I have to teach a Torah that is appropriate to who he is and I have to teach a Torah that's appropriate to who you are. But if I start teaching you the child's Torah and you think that's the only Torah around, you're going to say, hey, I'm not a kid. I need something that's sophisticated. You know, I'll tell you a sad story. I'm teaching a class on the meaning of Yichud Hashem. And there was a woman in my class. She was like in her 50s. And as I'm teaching this class, she's getting angry. She's getting visibly angry. Now, I don't know why. Most people really like this class. At the end of the class, she leaps at me. And she says, I want to speak to you now. I said, okay, not in front of everybody. If you don't mind, let's go off to a corner. So we go into my office. And uh, she starts yelling at me. This is Judaism? I said, yes. Why are you yelling at me? This is Judaism? I said, yes. Why are you yelling at me, Barbara? 
She says, <laughs> she says, if my son would have heard this class ten years ago, he would not have been a Buddhist today. I said, well, why are you yelling at me? <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know your son. So she said, why isn't anybody teaching? He went to Buddhism because he's looking for a, 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 a more abstract, a more spiritually, you know. So I said, okay, okay I understand. So I'm doing a talk in Dallas when I, on my first book tour. And I said over the story. And, uh, and I said over this idea. And I said over the story how this woman responded to this idea of the meaning of Yichud Hashem. There's a person in the audience that put up his hand. And he said, this is Judaism. If I would have heard this ten years ago, I wouldn't have been a Buddhist today. And you know who he was? He wasn't Barbara. <laughs> but that would have been a good story. Now I can make that one out. But uh, he wasn't Barbara. But uh, he was just shocked. He said, I can't believe this. Right? I've been taught that Hashem is some guy in the sky who's got some big ego and he's trying to control me and he's just got 613 ways to make my life uncomfortable. And everything forbidden and everything fun is forbidden. That's, that's the Judaism I met growing up. Yeah, what's your name? I have a friend, uh, she uh, is a Buddhist, and um, she recently got a hold of Kabbalah, but she's um, been saying that she wants to like, do both or something like that. Is that mm-hmm. like possible? Because they say like Buddhism is not a religion, it's a philosophy. No, Buddhism and Yiddishkeit are not on the same page. There are Jews that call themselves Boo-Jews. <laughs> These are Jews that go around scaring people. <laughs> Boo! <laughs> boo Jews. They call them boo Jews. But sadly, I know I've been I've heard something like a statistic of one third of the Buddhist movement in America are Jewish. And I think a lot more of the leaders of the Buddhist movement in in, in, in America are Jewish. I gave a talk. Uh, I gave a talk in a city and um, at the end of the talk uh, the, the host came up to me and said, you won't believe who was at this talk. The head of the Zen Buddhist Center of the city. He's one of the most uh, leading figures in the Buddhist movement in America, and he's Jewish. And he showed up to your talk. I said, I'm going to tell you where he was sitting. So said, How, you know who he is? I said, no, but I can tell you where he's sitting. He was sitting three rows in front of me, five seats to the right of me. He says, how did you know? I said, he was the only one with pink robes. No, no, he wasn't wearing pink robes. I said, this guy had such energy with me. I just felt such resistance with this fellow. There was just something going on over here. And you know what I think was going on? He was, think, he was hearing things in the name of Yiddishkeit that he thought was Buddhist. He thought like he had left Judaism because Judaism doesn't have a sophisticated system of spiritual transformation. And I'm presenting Yiddishkeit and showing that it does. And this guy had such an energy with me. He was like really resisting what I was saying. And that's what I... And I said, I think that was him. She said, you're right, that was him. Anyways, that's uh, what we're going to share for tonight. Let's all go Davin and Kultub Shkoyev. So we will continue this tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.
I I spend a little time with the neighborhood at a children's home, and one of like the things that I like sort of noticed is that like there's like a crazy crazy percent of the population that smokes there. And I remember asking one of like the fellows at the home, it's at the tea home, it's from my Muna, and they gave like a couple options, the culture, they grew up, is that one of the things he said was that after yeshiva, like they have like a whole day and they get like very stressed because of like these concepts that like these childish concepts that they think about God and they smoke to like get to be stress free. Wow. And that really yeah. stuck with me. Wow. I gave a talk on tefillah and a Hasidish boy came. He was in Toronto. A Hasidish boy with like white socks and the pants and the white socks. And he was so out of place in this modern Orthodox synagogue. And he was like about 15, 16 years old. He was on Shabbat. He came up to me. And he said, I had no clue that this is what Davin is about. So he went back to his yeshiva. It was a Hasidish yeshiva. It was third meal. He got up in front of everybody. At third meal, he says, does anybody here know why we Davin? And they all said no. <laughs> they all said no. So he got my book on tefillah. He was a 15-year-old. And started doing chabura in his room. Teaching, just reading my book with the, with the kids. And he was filled. His, his mother told me. She called me up and she said, Mom, my kid just changed his life. His mom is so, so excited about Yiddish guy. And he's got a chabura in his room. It's filling, filling. And even rebbies are coming to his shiur now. <laughs> so... We have to go back to the basics and understand them. Thank you very much. Yeah. 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 Ye